Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello, and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the third week of June. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined today again by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Josh, you've been out of town a little bit, took a little break. How was it? Oh, it was great. Much needed. But I got to say, you know, being in Austin, being out of Austin in terms of sort of people's reaction to the coronavirus, very different experiences. Well, uh, I am not surprised by that. And we will come back to that as it turns out. We're going to touch on a couple of topics today that are somewhat different in the response and the politics of the coronavirus pandemic in Texas is one of them. But we're going to start with action in the U.S. Supreme Court. Yesterday, the court handed down a decision that surprised a lot of people, and we can talk about the sources of that surprise. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, protects gay and transgender Americans from workplace discrimination. The the main case that this will be known as, it actually consolidated three cases, is Bostock, versus Clayton County, Georgia, and that's easy to to find out there in the world. Um, The decision was written, as these decisions are by one, you know, the the decisions are written by one justice. It was written by Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch, which also raised a lot of eyebrows given the the decision, and the the court decision was 6-3 in favor. And at the heart of this, you know, if you quote the decision, The court held that an employer who discriminates against homosexual or transgender employees necessarily and intentionally applies sex-based rules. This is prohibited, the court says, by the Civil Rights Act. Um, And and, and so they they reasoned that any employer who discriminates on these ground inescapably intends to rely on sex in its decision-making. This is a big decision, particularly in Texas, which is one of 29 states which has not enacted any state-level employment anti-discrimination laws that would protect uh, LGBTQ uh, citizens. Um, You know, and I sort of flagged how relying on sex in its decision-making, you know, this is based on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the landmark Civil Rights Act that strengthen the enforcement of 14 Amendment protections for African-Americans, women, and um, other racial and ethnic minorities. Um, and the key provision, which you know is in the decision, is Title VII. And anything in the, the Civil Rights Act, the, the sections of the, of the law are called titles. Title VII makes it, quote, unlawful for an employer to fail or to refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, asterisk, or national origin. And it's that term sex that this really turned on, right? And the interpretation of it by the court. Right. And so ultimately, 
you know, one of the idea here was what does sex refer to, and and what I think opponents of extending rights to to gays and lesbians and transgender people said that sex only basically refers to gender, and really what it only actually refers to in terms of when the law was originally written is it refers to women, and they were trying to make sort of the most narrow of narrow rulings, and and what the majority came to as you as you highlighted was. Is it basically, you know, sex is being used as a determining factor when considering sexual orientation and 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 gender identity? Because ultimately, what what sort of the, the ruling sums down to in a lot of ways is this idea that if a person comes in and because of you know private you know private decisions they make about you know their romantic life on the one hand or how they cho- choose to present themselves on the other, ultimately to the extent that an employer has a problem with that. It's because it's not aligning with their 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 expectations of the sex of the person who should have those kind of romantic proclivities or that kind of gender presentation. And so ultimately, you can't separate the two. You can't say these are about different things because you have to use the basis in, in, in sex, a bio, you know, some sort of a biological birth gender to then create the expectation that people are violating that then allows for the discrimination. And so that, that linking those two things together was a was, you know. I mean, a really big deal. I mean, to go back to a point you'd made, there are 29 states that did not provide any sort of employment you know, protections for LGBTQ people. This is, you know, ultimately something that's different about Tuesday, you know, from Sunday is now those protections extend to everybody in every state. And further, yeah. I mean, one of the, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, and there's, you know, there's, I mean, I think there's a couple of interesting things there. One, which you touch on is, you know, the you know, we might call the politics of interpretation here. And, you know, we'll talk about expectations in a second, but, right. you know, who would have thought that, I mean, well, you know, people were wondering how this was going to unfold, but, you know, how you view that interpretation can be kind of a complicated thing to, to complicate the, the interpretation in the decision, you know, because one, you know, the, the as you said, the, the opponent's argument was, Look, when Congress wrote this, they meant men and women. Right. You know, we have lots, you know, we can say that there are, that there's lots of, sub, you know, contextual information that tells us that. And, and that gets us into the politics of how judges are picked. And we don't want to go too far down that road. But, you know, just how closely they hew to literal readings of the Constitution and of the law. And there's an interesting dynamic here in terms of just how literal that this was. And then there's the history of the Civil Rights Act and as it was passed in Congress at the time, the fact that sex is included was really deeply embedded in the politics of the time. And that, um, I mean, I, I think there's an overly simple view of this because in some ways, you know, the, the, the story version of this is that the Virginia congressman who initially included the amendment that included sex into the bill in the House was a conservative anti-civil rights Democrat from Virginia, a guy named Howard Smith, and that he put it in as a way to complicate the passage of the bill. Now, it's often said it was a poison pill, and it's a little more complicated than that. He was, I mean, he did it in a spirit of, um, in an antagonistic spirit. And he did it to not help the bill, but it doesn't mean that there weren't there there were people on the left that were you know um, and even you know among Republicans at the time 
who wanted to include women in this, but for complicated reasons, some of which had to do with a straightforward assertion of women's rights. Others that weren't as straightforward that were worried that this would give women of color rights that white women didn't have. And so it was a very complicated discussion at the time. And in fact, many of the people that we would think of as the liberal Democrats supporting the civil rights bill opposed including women in the bill at the time because they thought it would hurt its chances of passage. So now, you know, know, whatever, 55 years later, this interpretation that is a more expansive interpretation turns on what was ultimately an obstructionist, uh, you know, effort to scuttle the whole thing. Well, it's funny. I mean, hearing you, you know, hearing you recount that, it does make me think of how in recent years, you know, oftentimes, you know, conservative opposition to sort of the expansion of rights to sort of, to, to, you know, newly ascended groups in society, not to say that these groups didn't exist in society before, they certainly did, but, but newly recognized as existing. In particular, legally, legally and socially recognized. Yeah. Well, and I'm saying this is even, I would say this is even before the point of legal recognition, right? So, you know, walking up to the point of legal recognition, you know, I think especially in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, well, what would these new rights imply? So, you know, going back over the last 10 or 20 years and looking at the issue of gay marriage, for example, it wasn't uncommon in the nineties and in the two thousands and even into the 2010s, early part of 2010s for, you know, a lot of uh, op- opponents of same-sex marriage say, well, once we extend, you know, rights to gay and lesbian couples to marry, well, certainly then people could go and marry whoever they want. They can marry their brothers and sisters. They could marry their their pets. I mean, these were these are not, you know, hidden arguments. I mean, these were arguments yeah. that you'd hear Bill O'Reilly making on Fox News, not, you know, the exemplar of, of good uh, taste. Members judgments. of the U.S. Senate, some of them from Mem- Texas, as I recall. Sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, this idea of, you know, well, if we do this, then what has been kind of a common thing. And as you recount this sort of this, the complicated story of adding uh, sex to the list of protected classes in Title VII against discrimination, it kind of highlights, again, this idea of like, well, what would this mean? Who else would get rights? Right. Who who would get rights more so than someone else? And, the, and this is sort of this has been a common, I guess, feature in some ways of American politics when it comes to the idea of extending rights is that all of a sudden opponents will come up, not even all of a sudden, but opponents will come up and say, well, what, you know, and sort of propose often the most outlandish, right. you know, sort of possible consequences, you know. It's, yeah, it's a hyperbolic version of a threat to the existing hierarchy yeah. and existing yeah. cultural norms. And it's a, it's a, it's a regular feature of the playbook, I think, as we, as we watch this. So, so I think, you know, as we kind of step back, you know, and look at this, you know, first point, this is a huge step in the legal status of LGBTQ Americans. Five years after the case that legalized gay marriage in the U.S., itself a major, seen as a major step. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of advocates, um, you know, in, in those advocacy communities today saying that, you know, arguably this is bigger than gay marriage, given the sweeping economic applications and the implications here. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, marriage is a relatively, you know, narrow thing, if you will. Well, I mean, mean, not that it's not important as an institution, but it doesn't, you know, and, and at the time there were, there were, I, I remember there being arguments in the lead up to, to the advocacy for gay marriage about whether marriage was the right place to start, whether it was a big enough prize, whether it was inclusive enough, or whether broader anti-discrimination 
you know, sh- measures should be the, you know, the primary political goal. And of course, you don't always get to choose. You don't, you generally don't get to choose what you get if you're an advocate and you're a, you're an you excluded group. But, I mean, you, you get know, opportunities. So, Right. So this turns out to be a, yeah. And the, you know, as cases go up through the court, I mean, you, you can only control so much. I mean, you can control what litigation gets started, but you can't control the pace at which it progresses through the system and how it's well, received. Well, you know, and the thing is, I think, you know, your point here is this is arguably bigger, you know, than gay marriage, I think is, is an important one. You know, I mean, as important as, as, as marriage is, you know, at its, at its base core, in the most unromantic way possible, marriage is a contract between two people that, that bestows upon them a set of rights, a lot of them are economic. A lot of them have to do with, you know, dispensation of funds, you know, at death, certain rights around hospital visits, things like that, you know, and ultimately a lot of people don't get married and never actually gain any benefit from these rights. And ultimately a lot of the rights that, you know, this is protecting in terms of sort of how assets are handled actually relate to sort of, you know, economics. And ultimately, you know, your economics are going to be a lot worse off if you can't gainfully employ yourself. And there's, there tends to be this, you know, interesting sort of stereotype about, you know, especially gays and lesbians in general, that because, you know, in many cases, they're not having as many, you know, children at the same rates as heterosexual couples for obviously, you know, biological reasons, that they don't have the same expenses as heterosexual couples. So there's this sort of idea of these, you know, basically homosexual couples living this economically, you know, robust lifestyle because of the things they're not paying for college education, kids clothes, orthodontia. And the truth is the data actually don't show that in most cases, because gays and lesbians are actually it's until Monday, (laughs) because it was perfectly legal to discriminate in employment decisions against gays and lesbians in the majority of states. And in, and, as, and, and mostly in states where attitudes towards gays and lesbians are not as positive as they are, let's say, in a California or in New York, where it's not legal to do that. Actually, you know, the economic outcomes for gays and lesbians tend to be a lot worse than for, for heterosexuals. And so, like, that shouldn't be surprising when you really start to put it together. Think right. about it. That's, that's part of why this is such a big deal. It's actually a lot more sweeping a benefit than gay marriage was. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point about the evidence of, of where gays and lesbians are and, you know, sort of popping that stereotype of the prosperous, you know, urban gay couple, which is not right. representative. Now, you know, the other, another major point about this or thing to think about is how the story was framed. We started by saying that this was a, a surprise decision. And these are expectations based largely on the impact of Donald Trump's appointment of justices who were clearly chosen for their conservative credentials. And, and this has been a major you know this you know the you know the position of court appointments or the role of court appointments in Donald Trump's rise has been really important we know that you know going into the election you know national polling our own polling in Texas showed that you know to the extent that it's reliable not because of the polling but because of the attitude you know that uh, people you know told pollsters that if Republicans told pollsters that probably the that the most important issue affecting their vote was was court appointments, and so there's been an enormous amount of of weight put on this, and and the Trump administration has followed up on this with Mitch McConnell's cooperation in the Senate in appointing lots of conservative justices. You know, even before he was elected as part of his campaign strategy, they released a list of judges that would be their favored candidates that was supplied to them by a very, 
conservative organization, the Federalist Society, known for having the objective of making the federal courts more conservative. Um, you know, but this really does raise the question, once you say that people were disappointed because the conservatives didn't rule the way they were supposed to, and in fact, again, the 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 justice that wrote the decision, Neil Gorsuch, was a Trump appointee, appointed because he was verifiably a verifiably conservative uh, judge. Um, you know, it kind of raises questions about, you know, how the Supreme Court makes decisions, what our expectations should be. You know, and on issues that are in the public eye, the court, conservative or liberal, often seems to stay pretty close to what public opinion is. And in this case, public opinion was leaning, you know, very strongly in this direction, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, for what it's worth, we haven't actually polled on, you know, gay marriage in Texas for a long time because it's become less of an issue. But I, you know, I went back and I looked at, at gay marriage, for example, and in, and in 2015, when we polled, 43 percent of Texans thought that gays and lesbians should have the right to marry. By 2017, it was 55 percent. We haven't polled recently on this, but national numbers released, I think, just this month by CBS News found that 82% of Americans thought that the, said the Supreme Court should extend civil rights protections to people identifying in gays and lesbians, and that includes 71% of Republicans. So the reality is, I mean, people talk about this all the time, partially because I think, you know, gay marriage in and of itself is such, uh, it's almost an exception. I mean, I would say it's an exception that proves the rule, but it's, it's such an interesting case in that we so rarely see such drastic movement in public opinion. And when I say drastic, I mean, even over the course of a five, 10, 20 year period, but gay marriage has moved so quickly. And I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, the whys of that are all speculative, but I think what a lot of people point out is that as, as gay marriage, you know, again, became a right, as gays and lesbians became, you know, more represented in popular culture and became more free to live their lives openly around people. It turned out that a lot of people knew gays and lesbians that that never did, and it becomes hard to discriminate against you know your friends, your right. coworkers, your family, and so member. your family yeah. members, and so and and so you know you've seen this drastic uh, shift over time. You know, focusing on Texas, you know, a little closer to the present. You know, in 2018, 74% of Texans said that transgender people face either a lot or some discrimination. 68% said that gays and lesbians face a lot or some discrimination. And so there's no denying or, you know, sort of the acknowledgement of the fact that we are, that, you know, as a society, you know, LGBTQ plus people are being treated differently than heterosexual people, you know? And so, so that's not a question. What is, but at the same time, there are pretty big differences here, right? In terms of Yeah, sure. I mean, this. right. I mean, it's not as if Republicans are just letting, you know, can just let the issue go per se. Right. So, I mean, you know, when we were saying about, you know, views of discrimination, you know, 89 percent of Democrats, but 60 percent of Republicans say that transgender people face a lot or some discrimination for gays and lesbians. It's 87 percent of Democrats and 52 percent of Republicans. And then actually just last June in 2019, we asked whether Texas's state government is doing too much, too little, or the right amount to protect the rights of LGBTQ Texans. 64% of Democrats said too little. 40% of Republicans, which was a plurality, said too much. Only 6% of Republicans said that the state's doing too little to protect gays and lesbians. And so, I mean, the other thing about this, I was thinking about, you know, what you were saying before, you know, absent a court decision you know, the probability of Texas passing some kind of a statewide anti-discrimination ordinance in any 
reasonable amount of time, two years, five years, 10 years, absent the court movement, is almost unthinkable, right? Right. I think that's right. And I think part of that is that, you know, if we dr- when we drill down into those numbers where you have, I mean, there's two things about the numbers you talk about that, you know, I think stand out. One is there's a difference between, you know, and then the difference is numerical. It's about, you know, 12 to 15 percent between Republicans who say, no, these these folks experience discrimination. But do I think we should do anything about it? Do I think government should do anything about it? Are two different dimensions, right, that make it, you know, that have that. And then the other piece is that, you know, you didn't break this down, but my recollection of those numbers is that, you know, the, you know, the concentration of opposition or, or a kind of, uh, you know, a remaining bias against LGBTQ people, and just call it what it is, really is concentrated among older and the most conservative and most, you know, intense of Republicans. These are people that vote in Republican primaries and they have helped make this kind of a hot button, you know, kind of a third rail issue for Republican candidates in the state, no matter what the overall kind of arc of public opinion is. So I think you kind of have to keep that in mind as far as the politics of this. Well, speaking of the politics of it, I mean, what would be Surprising to me would be if in the next few days or weeks we don't see a move by somebody in state government at a high level, whether it be the attorney general, lieutenant governor, or the governor to either, you know, push back on, you know, the ruling either, you know, in terms of what its limits are and or even try to frontally challenge its applicability, because that's actually what we've seen in the past. Right. Whether it's a, you know, the fact that a conservative justice wrote the majority, you know, opinion, I don't think really matters. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that strikes me in this kind of going through this discussion so far is the fact that, you know, conservatism isn't one thing. Right. You know, I mean, you'd kind of I mean, not to get into a deep discussion here. Yeah. Right. But I mean, ultimately, that's a very yeah, that's a that's a very. Yeah, as, as you know, I think that's a very pregnant mo- question at this moment. I mean, to telescope out as we think about. You know, this decision, as we think about the ongoing discussion about race in the country, about policing and, you know, the various, you know, we could pick out another half dozen issues related to race, you know, Confederate monuments, how we think about the past, Uh, you know, how you, you know, in in a sense, it's kind of who's going to, in a very oversimplified sense, it's kind of who's going to call the tune now. Um, if you're in the conser- if you're a conservative, if you consider yourself part of the conservative movement, or more directly, frankly, you know, given the way that the parties have sorted, part of the Republican Party, you know, you got some big decisions to make about what's going to be on your agenda and where you're going to emphasize. And we saw some of this. I mean, you know, the response to this was kind of split among Republicans and conservatives in the last 24 hours, as we've seen the response. You know, on one hand, I think the kind of movement conservative, some of the the pronouncements I saw from people from the Federalist Society who I mentioned is producing these lists of whose cause is judicial conservatism. Um, You know, for lack of a better term, we're pissed and kind of hostile about this Um, and, you know, pushing even harder on this. But there were a lot of, you know, there were a couple of prominent U.S. senators, I mean, including John Cornyn, as I recall, who were saying, you know, we'll have to look at this, but, 
you know, it seems to me that Judge Gorsuch made a reasoned decision that we can live with. And other conservative activists on the religious right saying, look, our main issue right now is still abortion and, you know, the protection of religion in public life. This has not been an issue that we have been emphasizing. I mean, I think so that that discussion is still going on, even among the most conservative of conservatives. Well, and I think, and I think that's, I think that's kind of what's. I mean, going to the politics of this and how this all intersects. I mean, I think what makes this such a, an, you know, an interesting. I mean, you know, setting aside, we've we've addressed this piece of it, which is, you know, huge fundamental expansion of civil rights in this country. It's a it's a watershed moment for the LGBTQ community. Now, moving past that to the mere area of politics, right? I mean, the thing that's interesting, I I think, is that you know. In the immediate term, uh, as you had pointed out, you know, one of the biggest issues for Republican voters, both in 2016, again in 2018, uh, you know, was the appointment of conservative justices. I mean, this is what they kept telling us, you know, for Democrats, the main issue has been health care. Ultimately, you know, the Trump reelection campaign was originally based on a strong economy. That's out the window, right? Uh, you know, ultimately, the response to the virus is going to be a problem politically to address. You know, the one thing that I would say, you know, Republicans could hang their hat on is say, hey, we've appointed more justices and more quickly than basically any administration ever. We put multiple you know, conservative justices on the Supreme Court. And so this is the thing we've done for you, you know, base voters, the really engaged conservative voters. And now they have to explain this. Yeah. And in and of itself, I think that creates a difficulty. But I think what you're saying also points out the difficulty of having, you know, someone at the top as the leader of your party and the president who's not really a traditional conservative. I mean, he's not someone who came up through yeah. the Federalist Society. He's not someone who really was even a Republican for a long time. And his ideology is clearly not fixed in any sort of traditional conservative, you know, you know, easily describable conservative fashion. And, and accepting the fact that there are multiple possibilities of what that could mean, right? And so I think that's why you are seeing this sort of I would say both, you know, multiple reactions and obviously not one clear response from from Republicans in particular towards this issue, because, you know, who's the leader? I mean, who, yeah. who would they follow at this point? And so you are seeing the different factions of conservatism kind of coming out and some saying, well, that was a fair textual read of, of the case on the one that on the one hand. Or, you know, that's not really originalism because nobody in 1964 was thinking about transgender people when they said this. So you shouldn't either. Right. Right. To, you know, more Milton Friedman economic style conservatism that says, hey, we don't have to worry about discrimination because the marketplace will root it out, which right. ultimately, which ultimately not good enough. But some of that is happening anyway. And you're seeing that with businesses. So, I mean, this sort of fight is likely to kind of go on because there's not a lot else, I think, yeah. for, you know, to hang hang one's hat on right now. Well, and I think, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this is handled, um, particularly because the Trump administration has been catering to the same constituency that is interested in conservative justices with executive orders mm -hmm. rolling back, sort of Obama-era executive orders made in favor of LGBTQ rights. Like as so recently will, as just before this decision. I mean, right. So we'll, be, we'll continue to see a lot of this unfolding. You mentioned the coronavirus, and we've only got about five minutes, but I do want to hit on a little bit of this. Um, in part, it's just because we said we did, and we had the great setup of your travels. Oh, um, here we go. Your anecdotal, your anecdotal adventures uh, with <laughs> with the COVID nineteen 
uh, awareness. Uh, now, at a I mean, the, the point here, we're, we're being jocular, but it's, you know, many indicators are up statewide for Texas in terms of indicators that the the pandemic is, has, is far from being suppressed in Texas, to understate the case. Seven-day moving average for hospitalizations has been steadily increasing since about the first week of June, as I read the data. And we'll put an asterisk on the data. Same with the number of daily new cases. Um, you know, number of reported deaths has not increased at the same rate. Um, that's been a little bit more jaggedy and and a little flatter. Um, but the infection rate, that is the share of positive test results, increased in late May and hasn't gone down. Seven-day average there is just under six percent, which is kind of the the benchmark threshold I think that the Governor Abbott set. And when it comes to testing data, which is really, in a lot of ways, the foundation of what we're trying to interpret here when it comes to infection rates, as of today, Texas is, again, ranking 43rd out of the 50 states in, tex in testing. That is, you know, you measure this by controlling for population. So we look at test per 1 million population. Texas is testing at a rate about the third, at a rate that's about the third of New York's rate. Now again, New York was a the initial hotspot. They started earlier, um, and but our rate is also a bit lower than half the rate of Louisiana, and Ouch. that's not yeah, <laughs> which is which is not saying much. Uh, you know, I could go on and make it even worse. We're actually behind Mississippi on that, and is oh. you know somebody was saying to me earlier, you know, you don't hear that buying, very often. We're not behind Oklahoma, are we? Worse than Mississippi. I don't think we're behind Oklahoma, but okay, I, well, I have to go check. Goodness. So. You know, uh, we want to kind of, you know, I think I think at another time we'll talk a little bit about data issues here. I mean, but, you well, know, one should say that people are using the data a different way because of the low level of testing and because of all the pieces of reporting, you know, the data are, you know, I, what's the word? I'm just going to say problematic. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I want to flag, let me, let me just real quick. I mean, why, you know, you're, you're flagging sort of the number of tests. I mean, ultimately, you know, so we do a lot of polling and the idea is, you know, you want to go and find out what a group of people think about something. You want a random sample of people. So it's representative of that whole testing is not random. And the less testing you have, the less random it is. So ultimately, if we're only doing a little bit of testing, that testing is not being given out randomly because most of those tests would be wasted. Right. So ultimately, the testing goes to the people who are most at risk. So it's the people in, you know, where there are clusters of cases in nursing homes or first responders. Ultimately, as we increase the number of testing, at some point it can look like we're going down, but we're actually just expanding the populations we're testing. And the reason we want to get so high is because, yeah, we're still going to I mean, everybody's still going to prioritize testing people who think they may have been exposed or who are in certain positions where they're more likely to be exposed. But as testing gets uh is the rate of testing across the population gets larger, then we're starting to bring in more people who, you know, may be a little bit exposed, may or may not have it, may have to just get tested because of work or some other reason. And then we're actually getting closer to something that looks at least a little bit like a random sample so that when we're looking at these trends, we can say, oh, you know, this actually is a decline. This isn't because of the way we're testing, or this actually is right. an increase. It's not because we just tested this prison population. And so that's and, why, you know, the number of tests is so important partially. Yeah. And, and it shapes the politics because people take, you know, the people that, you know, those who want to say that we're doing okay, or it's not as bad as it seems will lean on the part of your, you know, the, the first party explanation. Well, yeah, we're, 
we're testing where all these people are at risk. It's either hot spots or people that we know have possibly been exposed. And so it's not as bad as it looks. The only problem is, is that every time that somebody said that over the last two weeks, a reporter from some news organization has gone and said, well, well, wait a minute. Let's is look it, at this a even, little more closely. Well, and, and ultimately it's math. I mean, you know, I mean, ultimately yeah. when someone says, no, it's because we started testing, you know, these prisons and there was a big outbreak there. Well, you know how many cases came back positive from that prison. You know how many new positive cases there were. So therefore, one could say this only makes up 20 percent. Yeah. of the increase in cases. So what what's the other 80%? And that's that's been I think the the sort of the troubling thing The weakness of is, that argument is manifest. I mean, you know, I was I was going to get there. Um Sorry. No, no, it's all right. So, uh you know, so I think, you know, as as we watch this going forward, you know, right now, you know, as we record this, we're seeing these bad trend lines uh, reigniting tension between state and local officials. You know, the Austin area has seen a resurgence in in a lot of these indicators. The city of Austin, in, you know, in the city of Austin in particular, has seen increased cases. And the mayor and local officials want to take steps to slow or even reverse some of the steps to open up. And in a way, they can't, right? And they yeah, can't yeah. because the way that the executive order is written and the way that the, the Governor Abbott has approached this says that the state order trumps all local orders and you can't do anything that's that's in contradiction of the state orders. And so the the mayors of the, of cities with with upticks are stuck just basically trying to exhort people to be more careful and to wear more masks and encouragement. A lot of and to, yeah. encouragement. And encouragement is just not the same while the governor is in a, a more problematic uh, political position you know, having already taken heat for waiting too long to open up or opening up too slowly from people that are, you know, broadly speaking more in his camp and on his right and for being reckless and, and opening up too soon after waiting too long to shut down by his opponents on the left. The governor is going to give a, a press conference right after we finish recording this. Uh, as you listen to this, you'll know more than we do right now about the governor's response. But, you know, we want to watch those politics as they unfold. It's obviously important for public health and what we're all doing. And um, but, you know, winds up intersecting a lot of different underlying threads of, of politics in the state right now. Yeah, I mean, the challenging part is, you know, for the governor and is that, you know, in the position that he's taken, which was to allow the cities and the counties to take the lead on combating the virus when it first broke, but then essentially taking them out of the decision making process once the economy opened, the governor got to claim basically take credit for opening the economy and lifting, you know, these onerous restrictions off the city. But ultimately, now he is the owner of, of the policy and the consequences of the policy going forward. And the reality is, is that, you know, he's going to face blame and criticism no matter what. And that's partially something, you know, and I mean, look, we're, you know, we're all adults or quasi adults here. That's something he's balancing along with the public health metrics and the data as well. Um, you know, and, and not trying to be, you know, I'm not making any comment about that either way, but it's just part of the process. And so the reality is, is that, you know, if the governor decides basically to, to stay the course and deaths keep, you know, and hospitalizations keep rising and deaths go up and cases go up. He's going to own that and he's going to face a lot of, you know, criticism at the same time, 
you know, if some of the cities start to see some major spikes and he decides to allow them to go and basically reinstitute, you know, some restrictions that slow the economy, one, you know, he's going to hear criticism from within his party in the state, especially among some of the most conservative uh, members of his party, you know, who've expressed no interest in basically really fighting the virus at all relative to to the importance of the economy. He might also get criticism from the president. Uh, you know, at the same time, by not doing anything, he's going to get criticism from Democrats. And even if he does actually go and make, you know, let's say, allow restrictions to be reimposed, he's still going to face criticism from Democrats in the state for letting it get to this point in the first place. Right. And so, so it's I mean, not. Yeah, go ahead. Th- yeah, there's no real win for, for him here, uh, you know, given the path that he's taken. You know, and it was going to be it was going to be he was going to face criticism and pressure no matter what. I mean, you know, I think, you know, our polling numbers suggested back in the last time we were in the field in mid-April that, you know, a lot of people thought that it was going to take a few months at least for this to happen. But there were partisan differences there. And I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, in, in a way we're seeing those play out. It'll be interesting to see how much those change the next time we poll. Yeah, I mean, ultimately... The thing about where we are right now is that we're exactly where we were predicted to be when the reopening happened. I mean, this is when there was, you know, when all indications were based on, you know, the latency of the virus, uh, you know, uh, and everything. This is when we expected basically cases to start going up in this and especially in this next two week window. And I think, you know, I mean, honestly, easy for me to say, but I think, you know, this poses maybe one of the biggest challenges to Abbott's governorship is going to be taking place over the next two or three weeks, depending on what these numbers look like and how he responds. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, I mean, he's got more, a little bit more latitude than, than some do since he is not on the ballot in November, but you know, he is a careful judicious politician and he is mindful of his position. And it's, um, I think early on he showed a certain willingness in the, the outset of the virus to take, a few risks and to take some incoming, but the plan that is that is happening now seems to have changed that calculation. So we'll leave it there. We will no doubt come back to this, and we'll you know, good chance we'll we'll note what the governor had to say when we start next week. Uh, thanks, Josh Blank. Thanks to our crew at Liberal Arts ITS at the University of Texas at Austin, and we'll talk to you next week. Be safe. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.